1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Today on the pod, the province breaks ground on a new hospital in Surrey with costs already rising by more than a billion dollars. Health Minister Adrian Dix joins us. Plus, is it time Canada capped the number of international students or would it be disastrous for our schools and economy? And the travels of Dev, we catch up with the Canadian who decided to drive all the way from Vancouver to New Delhi, India. We catch up with them en route in Turkey. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. But first, let's focus on an issue closer to home. Earlier today, B.C. Premier David Eby and Health Minister Adrian Dix announced the groundbreaking on a new hospital in Surrey. The new facility will include nearly 168 inpatient beds, 55 emergency treatment rooms, And four procedure rooms, the new hospital and BC Cancer Center will also feature advanced diagnostic services such as medical imaging, uh, medical imaging department and three CT scanners and two MRI machines. Joining me on the talk a little bit about that decision, uh, that announcement rather uh, this morning is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. Now, when the hospital was first announced, the hospital was announced first in 2019, last summer the province had promised the hospital as well, but it said it would open by 2027 at a capital cost of $1.7 billion. Today, the capital cost of that new hospital when it was announced is $2.8 billion. So basically a billion dollar inc- increase. Why the increase? Well,
2: what we do is go through a bidding process uh, and uh, we've seen... Dramatic increases in capital construction costs across public and private sectors. We're certainly seeing that reflected here. That has to do with labor shortage, That has to do with supply chain. That has to do with all kinds of issues. And the sheer volume of the number of hospitals were busy because of years of neglect in that area. So what we do is we have a, uh, a competitive bidding process, and that's what happened in this case. The um, we have very uh, we have outstanding hospital building companies in BC and they competed and this is what they assessed the cost to be. They made bids. We assessed their costs and accepted their bids and it was obviously more than anticipated. But I think at that point Mm -hmm. the choice is are we going to proceed with a hospital or are we not? Are we going to wait until sometime in the future when construction costs come down to find time? Well, we've been waiting too long in Surrey. It would have been, of course, a lot less expensive if the promised Hospital in 2005 had been delivered on, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. And instead, the land was sold, and now we're paying this cost. But in our view, in my view, it's absolutely an important thing in south of the Fraser, and particularly in Surrey, to have this new hospital. Mm -hmm. And this came through a competitive bidding process, and we accepted this bid
1: uh how comfortable are you with the timeline and that 2.8 billion dollar number uh i think it's the the completion of the hospital is 2029 open to the public in 2030 and that 2.88 billion uh, are we expecting that you say is that a fixed cost or did you expect potentially there could Uh, be other other increases
2: and it's one of the challenges and we'll definitely have to look at fixed cost contracts because these are fixed cost contracts which is why the um in this case, the construction companies have to go through such a serious process because they're making a commitment to deliver on uh, that time frame and making a commitment uh, to deliver at that budget point. So this is, um, this is the commitment. This is the signed contract. This is the amount. And obviously, it makes it challenging in this context because we're seeing a uh, significant increase in, in capital costs. Just to put it in context, the St. Paul's project uh, which was delayed, as you know, for a couple of decades by the mm-hmm. previous government, essentially, um, and they, who failed to deliver on it. We did get that started much sooner, and the result is lower capital costs. There's no question on a very significant project as well. But we're building projects, essentially 25 major health projects around B.C. And on the hospital side, we have a relatively uh, small number of uh, Construction companies that are able to do this, to bid on these contracts, they're excellent, they do excellent work, and they're going to do, uh, um, uh, Ellis Don is going to do
1: an excellent job on this project. Uh, Surrey, of course, is a fast-growing region, as are other communities south of the Fraser, 1,500 residents per month, a move to Surrey um, every month. Why no maternity ward for this new hospital?
2: Well, we have maternity wards, as you know, at Surrey Memorial Hospital in Langley and Peace Arch. And so what the priority on this hospital is community beds, emergency beds, uh, uh, surgical beds, and importantly, cancer. So Surrey will be the only community in B.C. with two cancer centers. And what's happening in the population in Surrey is we're going to see a dramatic increase in the older population, well over 200%. In the next uh, 14 years, as opposed to the, the younger population under 20, which will grow by about 20 percent, still very significant for schools and for the healthcare system as well. So uh, we use our hospitals um, as uh, as teams together. And so the, the purpose here is to support cancer care, to support uh, medical care, to support surgical care and uh, to provide an emergency room and that sheer capacity of that. 280,000 additional medical imaging exams, 120,000 emergency department visits per year, 28,000 surgical procedures and cancer care capacity for 105,000 ambulatory oncology visits. What those that does as well is take pressure away from other hospitals. We have been working, as you know, at St. Memorial Hospital, and we discussed this last Friday, I think, uh, Jess, mm-hmm. on cardiac care, on maternity care, on renal on, uh, on care, Amongst other issues, there are specialty services, but critical services such as maternity. And so this was the, this is the assessment of what we need at this hospital. But clearly, we have to meet maternity demands, and that's what we're working at Surrey Memorial, but also in Langley, also in Peace Arch, to do.
1: Um, you, you talked about uh, the growth of the elderly population by 200%. So you're less concerned about maternity and more concerned by the growth. And that growth is predominantly driven by, by immigration then?
2: We're, we're, no, it's it's what we saw, what we see in Surrey, and first of all, we're very concerned about maternity and working very closely with maternity doctors. Because two things are happening with maternity. One, especially in the last two years, we've seen a relative increase against what we've been seeing before in maternity. So we have to plan for that and take action of that in the immediate. And we're working on that with our maternity teams at Peace Arch and Langley and um, at, at Surrey Memorial Hospital and other hospitals, obviously, across the province. Kelowna, in particular, saw a significant increase in maternity. So maternity is extremely important. We're dealing with that. In terms of the elderly population, what you're seeing in Surrey is the, the community's demographics changing uh, currently. Surrey is by far the youngest community, one of the youngest communities in Canada, one of the youngest communities in North America. And that affects um, the utilization of healthcare services. We use less services in general when we're young. All that's going to happen is Surrey's going to return to the mean. In other words, its population is going to look like everyone else's population. All those people who are, uh, who are 50 today in Surrey are going to be uh, in their 50s are going to be seniors in the later part of the next decade. And that population is growing. So it's not that Surrey will be an older population everywhere else. It'll be like everywhere else in terms of age distribution. And that means more people over 80. Mm
1: -hmm. I think the last time I checked, Surrey's median age was about 39 years of age, give or take. And and, and that is uh, below the national average, certainly. Now, one of the things, um, of course, uh, the new hospital will be located within the uh, Fraser Health um, Authority. Uh, Fraser Health stretches from Burnaby to Boston Bar, the trauma Mm -hmm. hospital. Uh, for Fraser Health is at the Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster. Should yes. there be a trauma hospital south of the Fraser? Because I, not just based on, you know, talking to uh, residents, but on the open line as well, you get medical professionals calling and saying, we really need a trauma hospital south of the Fraser. Royal Columbian doesn't cut it. There's a bridge to cross. We certainly need one in Surrey or Langry, wherever it may be, where the growth is, but certainly south of the Fraser. Well, two points. One, uh, BC is a large province, right? And um, many people
2: travel significant distances for trauma because of that size, right? So, um, our hospitals do have to work together as an authority, and they're not tied to municipal boundaries. All of that is, all of that is true. Mm-hmm. What we've heard from um, doctors at Sir Memorial Hospital is the need to strengthen specialty services. So, we've heard it on trauma, we've heard it on renal, we've heard it on. Uh, On cardiac care and so on, you saw that and I think you saw some of the ads that were done on those questions. And that's what the 30 actions that we're doing at Surrey Memorial Hospital are designed to do to provide improvements and increases in services. One of the challenges at Surrey Memorial, because of really the deliberate decision not to build a second hospital, is Surrey Memorial has to take everything, right? every case, every patient. And it makes, it crowds, it can crowd out if we're not careful. And that's why we're taking these steps, um, the specialty services that they need in Surrey. So I think the short answer is we are making, taking substantial steps at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And this building of a second hospital in Surrey will help in that. And that all of our hospitals, all of those hospitals in the, in the Surrey Langley Delta area, are going, to be, are going to be strengthened as well. Obviously, we need services uh, further out the valley. And so all of that is happening now. And I think it's important for people in every community in Fraser Health to get those services. So um, we're working with doctors at certain memorial hospital, but also with nurses and healthcare workers to make sure we have the right services there. And that's what um, our in-depth meetings have, have done there. And in the 20 other hospitals I visited and have similar meetings uh, throughout the summer.
1: Minister, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, right on. Anytime. Take care, Jeff. We focused uh, on this issue uh, last week, uh, but I also felt that we hadn't fin- finished the conversation. It is the conversation of the moment, that being, of course, international students. There are over 900,000 international students. In Canada. Uh, that's in 2023. Compare that to 10 years ago, there was 225,000 uh, international students studying here uh, in Canada. Uh, 10 years ago, foreign students brought in $8 billion uh, into Canada in regards to the fees that they were paying and their impact on the economy. Ottawa estimates that number is now $30 billion. All of that happening in the past Decade now, as Canada continues to grapple with a housing crisis, the conversation is also turning uh, to international students and the impact that they're having, not just on the education system but our housing uh, challenges as well. Multiple provinces, we are told, are pushing back on federal suggestions that an international student cap could help solve that problem, although many provinces say they haven't been consulted. Uh, Now, Immigration Minister Mark Miller, Housing Minister Sean Fraser, and Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc have all indicated that Ottawa is considering a cap on student intake. Now, they've all made those comments over the last two or three weeks, and Global News has reached out to provincial and territorial governments. Uh, The territorial government of the uh, Northwest Territory say they have been uh, talking or in contact with Ottawa, but um, the governments of British Columbia, New Brunswick and Newfoundland have told Global News that they have not been consulted on any proposed cap. But that is the conversation. You see international students in downtown Vancouver uh, throughout all our college, public colleges and university systems around British Columbia and many private schools as well. Uh, last week, we spoke to our guest who has arrived back here again, because I think this is a situation situation and conversation uh, that needs to continue. Barj Jahan is a co-founder and director of the Canada India Education Society, and he joins us again. Thank you for dropping by once again.
3: Great to see you again,
1: Jazz. Yeah, this is uh, an issue that I'm just trying to wrap my head around. I think a lot of us are. Uh, and you had some great information because you've done lots of research on this issue. Uh, let's go back to our original conversation. Uh, foreign students generally pay more than domestic students, uh, sometimes double, even triple, Uh and then what they pay. And what happens is we take that extra money, and that subsidizes the domestic student and subsidizes our post-secondary students. Uh, However, many have also said um, we have become addicted to those foreign student dollars, and they are significant. As I said, we've gone from $8 billion a year to $30 billion nationally. Uh, First and foremost, can you walk me through well, those are national numbers. What do the numbers look like here in British Columbia in regards
3: to students and the dollars the system is taking in? Uh, the numbers in BC, approximately are 164,000 international students. Mm-hmm. Now, if we adjust that for the new arrivals, we're probably looking right now at about 180,000. Mm-hmm. And in British Columbia, we have 25 publicly funded institutions. Those are our universities, the BCITs of the world, and community colleges, Mm -hmm. they currently have about 79 international, 79,000 international students. So
1: those are are universities or colleges or BCIT or technical schools? Okay. And when
3: we look at these universities, colleges and technical institutes collectively, my estimate is that that these international students are contributing $2.1 billion towards tuition fees Mm -hmm. and for their living expenses and so on. That's probably another $1.6 billion. So it's minimum $3.7 billion just around the publicly funded institutions. So that's rents,
1: that's tuition they're paying, total impact on the BC's economy, $3.7 billion, yeah. in your mind. Okay. But then
3: there's the other 80,000, 90,000 international students. Those are in the private institutions, and we don't have a really good handle on what they're contributing. So I would hazard a guess mm-hmm. that we're looking at 6 to $7 billion here in BC, by, broadened by international students.
1: I mean, I think the, the impact of our forest industry to provincial to our provincial GDP hovers around $6 billion. So that is equal to or above what the forest, ind- forest industry's impact on BC's economy yes. when it comes to foreign students. Yes. Now, public institutions uh, like school, like universities and colleges are accountable to the public. There is an openness there. Your thoughts on the private schools, because there's significantly more private schools and colleges that have opened up that these students apply for. They come here, they pay huge dollars for these courses and degrees. I don't know if they're worth much, but they seem to be just, it's an open field there, isn't it?
3: Yes. When we look at Ontario and British Columbia, mm-hmm. Ontario has the lowest domestic student contribution from, from Ontario. It's about $10,000 per domestic student to its public institutions. BC is number third, lowest, and it's about 14000 for domestic students. So BC government's contribution through grants has only grown at about 2.5% per year. Okay? Mm-hmm. Today, the tuition fees that is paid by international students might be greater than the grants that the government gives to its public institutions. Now, on the other hand, then, you have the, this explosion in a lot of new private colleges, institutes set up, and they're designated as learning institutes, and they can enroll students for six-month-long programs. And then the students get a study permit. So what's going on there? That's where I think a lot of the issues are because they're not accountable. Even our universities and colleges, they, they do provide public financial statements. They pro- provide detailed on revenues and so on. But very few are giving us a breakdown of what is the amount of tuition fees from domestic students, what is international, how many international students they have. So a lot of these accountabilities aren't there. In fact, no accountabilities are there for private institutions. Do you think
1: some of these schools are set up just to take advantage of the international student boom?
3: Well, you can see it because our province, starting back with the previous government, Ontario as well, Mm -hmm. they, they either reduced or they capped domestic student grants, And then they really pushed international students, as did Premier Christy Clark in 2011. Mm -hmm. She said she wanted to double the number of international students. Now the thing is, it's gotten out of hand.
1: Yeah. And do you think the housing challenge, though, is fair in regards to blaming um, international students, I would argue the federal government got out of the rental, purpose-built rental business uh, since probably the 80s and, and in the 90s it got even worse under the, under the federal liberals at that time because they're fighting the deficit, eliminating the deficit and there, there was a priority for that and the public wanted to see that and I, and I admit that. But we've got away from building rentals and one would argue that is why we're in the, the problem that we have today in regards to supply and international students may exacerbate that problem But they didn't cause it, and they're still not the main reason behind it. It's really about our poor foresight from decades ago.
3: Well, there are unintended consequences. with These many students coming in, where are they going to live? Langara College and Kwantlen, they have the highest percentage of international students out of all of the institutions. Langara and Kwantlen? Langara and Kwantlen, zero housing. So you open up the province, our, international, our universities and colleges, then you allow new private institutions to grow. Students are coming now in hundreds of thousands. Where's the housing? So it's a collective failure on all levels of government, as well as the post-secondary education system. Mm-hmm. The private bodies, colleges and schools, there is no requirement for them to provide any housing neither is there a requirement on our universities and colleges to provide housing. Mm-hmm. So the revenues are coming in, but that housing piece has been totally neglected.
1: Uh, you talked about uh, letting in uh, international students and the percentage of, uh, of these schools that have a very high uh, participation from international students. Uh, you mentioned Kwantlen and Langara. Uh, what percentage of Kwantlen's student body is now international
3: students?
1: 37%. 37%
3: and Laguerre is 32% and the University of British Columbia is 27%.
1: So that's 1 2 and 3 in regards to yes. the highest percentage in, in, BC. in yes. BC. And these are the public institutions. Yes. We don't know anything about the private institutions in regards to.
3: Yeah, I won't name any private institutions but there are a number of them that have multiple campuses throughout the city throughout Metro Vancouver. Yeah. You go to their websites, there's hardly any transparency. Mm -hmm. how many students they have, what the fees are. You have to kind of work through and calculate the fees. That is where lies the problem. So then what happened in the last three, four years is more and more students start coming in, more and more immigrants starts coming in. Now, Canadians who were owning a house, renting a suite, they start money coming in. They said, well, let's buy another house. And now they bought a house, now they're renting. There are instances of students who came two years ago mm-hmm. who rented a house, now they're sub-renting it. Really? They're sub-renting it to students, and students are making those arrangements from abroad before they even come here.
1: It's gotten that bad?
3: It, it is really bad. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, our guest
1: is Barj Dahan, co-founder and director of the Canada India Education Society. We're talking about capping the amount of international students arriving in Canada, huge part of the conversation nationally and provincially as well. Our guest, uh, Barj Dahan, co-founder and director of the Canada-India Education Society, uh, just went through some of the numbers and how reliant we are here in British Columbia, almost well over $6 billion. Uh, international students are now contributing uh, from our public institutions and our private institutions as well, um, to the point where I think the government has become reliant on those dollars, and universities and colleges certainly have been reliant. What do you think? Should we put a cap on international students arriving? in this country six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight 98 star 98 98 on your cell phone. let's go to Fred in Surrey. Hi Fred
4: Hey, Jess, how you doing
1: I'm doing well what is on your mind?
3: Well absolutely there should be a cap because these students are suffering they cannot find um, they can' find proper accommodation but my question is how does it affect in terms of our students the local students in competing for a uh, space you know in, in the university or college? If if I think the the prime minister and his government has abused our immigration system just to increase the number of people coming here just to study, these people have been given full employment rights. Are they here to work or are they here to study? Mm-hmm. Which one is it?
0: I'm really confused.
1: Fred, thanks for your call. Appreciate it. I mean, Fred does touch on something. Uh, generally, the response from a politician will be, "Hey, they don't. They actually subsidize the system. It doesn't impact the local population." So be it. Let's just say we, we, agree that we agree with that 100%. But as you say, when the numbers are at 37% of international students for a particular public institution, in this case, I think it was uh, Kwantlen, 32% for Langara, and 27% of students at UBC are international. Uh, and the people come, they work hard, I, that I understand. But it does dilute, one would argue, our reputation of our education system when we're so reliant on, on international students to actually subsidize it.
3: You're absolutely right on that. Uh, the reality is that our universities and vast majority of our community colleges, which are publicly funded, they're great institutions. They're accountable. Their quality of education is world class for many of them, and many of the students, foreign students, studying in those institutions, they are here to study. It's the ones that are in the private institutions. There are there are something like two hundred and 45 private institutions that are providing six-month courses. And those students, I'm not sure what quality of education they're getting. Quality is variable from institution to institution. And that is where lies the problem. And even our three major, uh, the, the three, three institutions that have the largest percentage of international students, they're actually very vulnerable. They, when you have 37% of your population international you're relying on those students to fund your operations. So Kwantlen, Langara College are potentially at risk if yeah. somehow the number of students were cut off right away or yeah. it was slowed down. It's
1: not like you're, you're going walking away from that funding slowly. It happens quickly. You're in trouble. Next thing you're sitting in Victoria, you're just essentially the taxpayers saying we need more money. So the system has become addicted to those dollars, one would argue. Uh, let's go to Richmond, uh, Richard sorry, in Coquitlam. Hi, Richard. Yes, good afternoon.
5: Uh, I, I love the topic. Um, first and foremost, I'll declare uh, we absolutely need the inter- international workforce or much of our economy wouldn't even run. I'll acknowledge that. Um, you know, touched on the, the level of education, uh, the, the public systems, absolutely. The secondary systems, those people are not here for an education. They're here as part of their process toward the permanent residency application which, again, I, I don't have an issue with. I think we should have a cap on the immigration, especially the international students, because we can't protect them when they get here. They're completely taken advantage of. Um, I refer to it as even modern-day slavery as you know they become indentured slaves to their employers, to their schools, to their consultants. And I'd like to see a cap so that we can actually manage that and give them the welcome that they deserve in Canada instead of setting them up for extortion and, and, you know, really modern-day slavery, I say. Yeah.
3: Richard, thank you for your call. I mean, that kind of nails it on the head, doesn't it? It does. There are stories out there. There's some documentation taking place where students who complete six months, they want to work. The government right now allows them to work 40 hours. There's no accountability or tracking whether they're continuing their studies or not. And then they try to find employers who will take them through the PR process, which is the permanent residency process. And then that student as an employee is bound to that employer. And that opens it up to abuse.
1: Barge, uh, I think we're going to have to have you come back. we got so much more still to talk about this issue. I hope you can come back uh, this week. We'll get you back for sure.
3: I'd be happy to come back.
1: Now, let's revisit our lead story today. Adrian Dix, our health minister, was on the show talking about the new uh, Surrey Hospital that was announced. Uh, the groundbreaking was announced today. The new facility will include 168 inpatient beds, 55 emergency treatment rooms, and four procedure rooms, uh, as well as uh, three uh, CT scanners and two MRI machines. Now, this announcement today comes in just a few days after um, doctors and health practitioners in Surrey organized a healthcare care rally uh, on Saturday at the Surrey Civic Plaza. One of those that was involved with that um, uh, large protest was Dr. Randeep Gill. Uh, he is, of course, the Surrey Hospital Foundation a Director at the Surrey Hospital Foundation. He is also an emergency room doctor at Surrey Memorial Hospital. We wanted to get his thoughts. He was at the announcement today as well. Dr. Gill, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you were at the announcement today with Health uh, Minister Dix and uh, Premier David Eby. Your thoughts on this new announcement? Generally, one would assume a, a good news story, but is it enough? Uh,
0: definitely a good news story. Um, is it enough? Well, I feel like our um, our rally cl- uh, cries were acknowledged, but probably not heard. Um, you know, my my takeaway on this is that uh, any good project comes. Uh, you know, you want to come uh, on budget and on time, and unfortunately, this is over budget and decades late Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know by by um, by being late there is a strategic advantage because you can use uh, that that time that you're late to see what the shifting landscape is Mm -hmm. and so this project was announced decades ago our landscape has you know significantly changed yet the project hasn't so uh, but that's really what we were uh, what our rally cries were about on 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 Saturday and Mm It, uh, it seems like they weren't uh, they weren't heard.
1: Uh, the two point eight billion dollar budget—it's gone up, obviously, by a billion just because of um, growth, but also just you know construction costs go up, uh, cement costs more, steel costs more, all of that. When you say uh, so you weren't heard uh, in in the sense of the announcement, what specifically was missing?
0: Well, see, so if you just take this hospital. Uh, You know, in particular, you know, our biggest concerns are we have an overrun maternity. We do not have a NICU, so that is a a neonatal ICU. We don't have stroke care, trauma care uh, south of the Fraser. So when you look at where this hospital is going to be, you know, people that are going to be presenting to this hospital, and if I'm working in that emergency department, uh, I would actually have access to less resources than the, the existing structure at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And unfortunately, these patients that will be presenting here that require life-saving intervention, especially since we're not implementing any new life-saving intervention other than the cardiac cath, which, which potentially is coming in 18 months, um, you know, but but all the other things that I mentioned, these patients would actually require more time and they'd be passing through Memorial while they're going uh, over the bridge to Uh, to get their life-saving intervention north of the Fraser. And that's really what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's actually going to take more time leaving this hospital than it would be at Surrey Memorial. Mm -hmm.
1: What do you say to the argument that, look, we understand the maternity uh, issue and and the way you've described it, but the minister today also said a significant increase of those over the age of 80, the elderly population. Surrey is growing. Um, The bulk of that growth isn't on the maternity side, but it's actually um, happening because of immigration. Uh, number 1 and number 2 we have an aging population a significant increase obviously in cancer care but dealing dealing with uh, you know patients not only just 60 plus but 70 and 80 plus in, in many cases that this is where the dollar should have been going what do you say to that argument
0: i totally agree with that argument uh, but you know so that 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 encompasses the stroke heart attack, trauma, and in neurosurgical care, which is you now the elderly pa- population typically are on some blood thinners, have an accidental fall, mm-hmm. may have a bleed. Now that bleed will not be taken care of at this hospital or at Surrey Memorial. It would still be requiring transfer. So so when we look at those, when we're looking at those cases of trauma care and neurosurgical care, none there is no uh, implementation of those services south of the Fraser. Mm-hmm. So it, it does not change the outcome of those elderly population that we want to take
1: care of. Mm-hmm. Now, when I look at the uh, Fraser Health, uh, it, it stretches from Burnaby to Boston Bar, and your trauma hospital uh, would be Royal Columbian Hospital in Westminster. Your argument is that just the sheer size and growth of Surrey and uh, you know the Langleys and, and the Abbotsfords, you really should have a trauma hospital south of the Fraser.
0: Absolutely, uh, and, and that, that goes with the thing. I mean, right now our population is somewhere in 640,000 uh, people, we're going to be up to 750,000, you know, 20 to 25% increase when this new hospital is open. Uh, and, and then even then, we still are not in the plans of even thinking about trauma care. So our, our, you know, we'll double by the time trauma care is thought of. And so this, the burden of population, you know, car accidents. We're not just talking about assaults. We're talking about car accidents, falls, injuries, people falling from the ladder. All those patients will require a trauma service. And uh, and in trauma, there you have a golden hour. You have the first hour to intervene, hemorrhage and and source control. And, th- and that's what we're talking about, saying, saying that those services need to be, uh, you know, brought south of the Fraser so we can get timely care. mm
4: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you talked about the growing population. Uh, e- even with this announcement and, you know, the ribbon cutting and, and uh, shovels in the ground, the usual pictures that are taken in these situations, uh, the reality is Surrey could probably use this announcement and probably two new hospitals or at least a Fraser Valley could to really deal with where we're at right now. You're still under, you know, you you need a few more hospitals in that community just to stay up with where you're at.
0: Well, those hospitals, yes, you do need those hospitals when you look at just the from the bed capacity, you know, we compare to just St. Paul's. I mean, the cost was 1.9 billion. Sure, I completely understand inflation and changes in, in labor costs and construction costs. But they're going to be adding a net net 548 beds. I mean, they're up; they're increasing by 115 new beds from their existing structure. We're only adding 168 beds, and our population is. And they're serving the same population. We're serving a growing population. So you know, that's uh, that's where. It gets tough, and we do really need to rally uh, uh, together and, and, and work collaboratively to try to you know, get that uh, second tower set up because mm-hmm. all the infrastructure is already there, like we spoke about before. And so getting that second tower, getting the life-saving interventions, so that we can actually improve care of
1: the freezer. Uh, and the health minister was uh, in Surrey last week, as he was today. Uh, do you feel reassured, because you raised the issue of not just the rally, but just some of the concerns uh, last week on this show, uh, do you feel there, that there is a desire on the government's part to solve some of these issues? I'm not talking about building even more hospitals, but just in the sense of addressing some of the challenges you have at Surrey Memorial
0: well we haven't seen or heard of any of those solutions that we've brought up so there's you know we, we definitely need to see uh, action uh you know i think that many many groups feel the same uh you know today was an announcement of something that they've already announced and we look forward to this hospital being built i, I agree with with uh, uh, premier eb that we cannot just delay this in the hopes of cost coming down otherwise it'll never be built but uh, you know 20 uh, we're looking forward to 2029 for this completion but um, you know we, we also need to focus on these life-saving interventions which is actually ultimately going to change access to care is one thing but it's you know getting the, the life-saving intervention when we need it in a timely manner is the real uh, crux of the matter which is what's going to ch- uh, improve the health care of our
1: So when Mr. Dick says that he's got a 30-point plan for Surrey Memorial Hospital, he was talking about that on Friday. He's been talking about it uh, this week as well. That doesn't address the issues that you've been bringing up and talking about? The 30-point plan doesn't address that?
0: No, it does not address the maternity. We don't have a solution for that. There's no infrastructure or increase in the maternity beds. I mean, we, in, at the rally, we had one of our most senior, Dr. Beckett, who's been uh, um, with uh, Mo Hospital for the last 30 years, the ex-chairman, has stated that, you know, there was a lot of promises made back in uh, uh, 2008, and the only net increase of four beds for maternity, I mean, that's just not going to cut it for, for a growing population who's currently having 6,000 births per, per year, uh, you know, with, with the exponential growth of another 150,000 people coming into the community within the next five years. Uh, you can just see the numbers. The, the, the numbers don't lie.
1: Dr. Gill, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Our next guest loves to travel. Calling him a traveler may be an understatement, though. Dev Salanki is originally from India. Uh, he decided he wanted to visit his homeland. He lives, of course, right here in Canada. No problem, you say. A quick direct flight from YVR to India, right? Not a problem. Well, no, he's actually driving from Vancouver to New Delhi, India. Uh, Dev started a few months ago right here, uh, from right here in Vancouver. The journey is taking him through three continents, 22 countries. And once completed, he will have traveled over 27,000 kilometers. Dev Selanki joins us now. Dev, thank you for
4: speaking to us today. It's good to be here. So uh, tell me, where are you right now? I'm currently in Istanbul, Turkey. And uh, how long have you been there? Uh, It's been three days. uh, So we flew from uh, Rome because our our visa was getting expired. So we flew from Rome, uh, the Schengen visa.
1: And where is your vehicle?
4: Oh, it's actually in transit. Uh, It'll be here uh, tonight.
1: It'll be in in, in, uh, Turkey uh, tonight. Okay. Now, you're uh, driving. Where do you go after this?
4: So after this, we are planning to take the car to uh, Iran and then Pakistan. From there, we will be uh, heading to India
1: from there okay uh, and any concerns over any safety issues or uh, have you had to take that into consideration
4: uh, like for Iran we are actually getting an escort and uh, even for Pakistan there will be people uh, like escorting us through the the, the uh, there's a region called uh, Balochistan so from there they mm-hmm. will uh, they will escort us uh,
1: what motivated this trip
4: uh actually we like i've I've always been traveling uh throughout my life like i started at a very young age when uh when i was in school so i used to go here and there uh, without even taking permission from my parents and then uh one night we were just sitting this happened like three years ago when we decided okay we want to do something uh from canada to india like a very long trip and that's how like traveling has always been uh a key in my lifestyle. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Now, where in, do you live in Canada?
4: In London, Ontario. In
1: London, Ontario. What kind of work
4: do you do in London, Ontario? I, I was actually doing, a, I was working with Whirlpool Canada as mm-hmm. a logistics specialist over there.
1: Mm-hmm. And so yeah. one night talking among friends, you just said, you know, we want to travel to India by vehicle.
4: Yes yes we we wanted to do a road trip and uh, that's how the idea got started and then it took us about 6 months to basically plan everything and then uh, we uploaded our first video on YouTube uh, after that covid happened and then the russian ukraine war so it got delayed
1: <laughs> it got delayed so uh, did you where did you start you started in vancouver
4: Uh, We basically flag off in Vancouver, but uh, we drove from London to Vancouver and then uh, flag off from Vancouver And then we started our journey from there
1: I see and it was important for you to do a trip across Canada as well as part of this uh, this trip
4: Yes, yes, like we wanted to do uh, we wanted to explore uh, our country first uh, moving out of uh, the continent Yeah, so we did. uh, Yeah, we did Canada and then we went to New York uh, to take a detour because uh, Quebec was facing uh, floods during that time.
1: I see. And then so w- once you traveled across Canada, did you ship your vehicle then to, to Europe? Is that how it's done?
4: Yes, we did. Uh, not to Europe, uh, to UK, Liverpool. The vehicle was shipped from Halifax to Liverpool. I see. Um,
1: even traveling across Canada, I mean, it was your first time. What were your impressions as a Canadian uh, traveling across your country?
4: Uh, it's firstly it's very vast like it's huge compared to any other region like any other countries canada is very massive like the landscape we we do have very different landscape across the uh border like across canada mm-hmm. uh one has mountains alberta has mountains and then the moment we come to uh, saskatchewan mm-hmm. and manitoba the plain area and then uh, ontario starts and we we find so many lakes mountain plain area all a mixture mm-hmm. moving towards the Uh, Eastern Coast, uh, like the area just uh, becomes more beautiful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel more Canadian now because of of having done that portion of the trip?
4: Definitely, definitely. Like that was one thing which I always wanted to do the moment I entered uh, Canada. I remember entering Canada in 2015. And then since then, uh, I wanted to travel. Like I have traveled uh, within Canada. But uh, this was something which I wanted to do a road trip from coast to coast.
1: Mm-hmm. So now you uh, you shipped your vehicle to the UK. You've traveling through Europe. What has that been like?
4: I think uh, like uh, UK was was fun. UK was fun. A little congested, I would say. But then uh, when you when you come to Europe. Uh, after like three four hours of drive a uh, country changes the culture and everything just changes even the language uh, change over here and it has been super fun like knowing different cultures talking to a lot of uh, other people like uh, who are not who are not sharing the same background as we are mm-hmm. it was really nice yeah
1: when you tell people what you're attempting to do what's the response
4: <laughs> it's mind blowing. Like uh a lot of people they 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 think that we are crazy. <laughs> That's what they think. I was like, why are you even doing this? I was like, Yeah, this is this is life for me. Like traveling gives me so much uh hope and uh, it makes me happy. So um I'm I'm just working towards my happiness right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh when you're, you, you're in uh, Turkey right now, uh, I saw some images that you posted. I think you were at the, at the uh, spice market there in Istanbul. Uh, I recall yes. visiting there, that place many years ago uh, when I was uh, covering a story in that area. Um, mm-hmm. uh, how do you spend your day, I, I, the spice market being one of them, but how do you spend your day beyond dr- driving? And do you try to make some time to vis- visit and spend some time in, in some sort of the local areas?
4: So, uh, like, this is what we have been doing throughout the trip. Like, we go to a country or to a city, and then we park our car, and then we just take a long walk across the city. Because till the time you don't walk, like, from the car, you cannot really get to know the culture, the vibe of the city. But if you're traveling, if, if you're, like, walking within people, mm-hmm. you get to know, like, it's a different language, but still you get to know the words they are speaking. It's a similar to, like, Hindi or, uh, like, a urdu it's it's similar to those words in turkey so you get to know like you you interact and you try to explain them what you want mm-hmm. and yeah it it's been fun like it, it's absolutely been fun
1: do you do you uh, you know sometimes it, you can be cynical uh, about humanity uh, what's your impression of people so far whether they be canadian or of other nationalities traveling through europe and now in turkey what is what have what has sort of been your impression generally
4: i feel like uh we're all same like uh humankind homo sapiens are all the same right and uh, it's just different mindset uh, a lot of people might be having regarding different different views but uh, when it comes to humanity everybody thinks just one thing they just want to get by they they want to like live their life mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we only, the ones online the real world is really really beautiful like uh you you have been traveling, so you know like what I I don't have words to express my feelings how how beautiful the world is.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that is the message I think we all need to hear once in a while because things can get uh, a tad uh, cynical and depressing when they shouldn't be. Life is beautiful, as they say. Now, uh, are there any particular cities you want to see in Iran or Pakistan? I mean, uh, Iran uh, it's sort of um, in the sense that it's in the news sometimes for all the wrong reasons, but a country itself is a vast country. A beautiful culture. People are wonderful. Is there a particular city or uh, area you want to go visit?
4: Uh, Iran? uh, Basically, I want to see Tehran and uh, the, uh, the Abbas. Mm-hmm. bandrabas mm-hmm. those two cities are uh, on my key list and uh obviously like we we i haven't really made an itinerary for iran like i've made an itinerary for turkey so that's how we are traveling we don't have an itinerary that okay i'm going to spend this much time in this country this much time in this country mm-hmm. like whatever whatever the vibe is we go with that mm-hmm. and then pakistan obviously lahore karachi the north of pakistan they they are really really uh beautiful islamabad mm-hmm. so i want to visit those countries or uh, the uh, cities
1: Have you visited Islamabad or or, uh, Lahore before?
4: Uh, Not yet, not yet, uh, because I have an Indian passport, so I haven't uh, really gone there. Oh, you haven't?
1: Okay. Well, I can tell you you'll enjoy it. I've been to both cities, and and, uh, you're going to enjoy... Um, yeah. Pakistan as well, and Iran too. It's a it's a it's a beautiful country. Um, out of curiosity, all of us would love to do what you're doing, but uh, you know we're all paying Vancouver-sized mortgages here, so we have to work. Uh, <laughs> now, did you have to quit your job, or did you take a leave of absence? How how are you getting by? The practical realities of life.
4: So uh, basically, uh, when we planned, like it was planned three years ago, and since then, I have been uh, putting money aside for this trip. Uh, for the COVID time uh, before this job like I was doing trucking. So yeah, I, I saved up a lot of money and then uh, That's actually helping me also. I've done some uh, investments here and there so that's giving me some passive income to get by and uh, For this trip. Yes, uh, I think I saved up enough that I'm actually enjoying and uh, oh, like uh, Money is a problem for everyone. It has been a problem for me as well, but uh like we're just keeping it low key and trying to uh, budget everything wh- wherever we go wherever we stay and all those things so, so yeah, what's the uh, uh,
1: what's the total length of your trip the time time so, wise
4: uh we started uh june 24th like that was the day we actually left our houses and it's going to take one more month uh approximately for us to reach India, so I think uh, four, four and a half months in total.
1: So are you going back to your job or, or are you going to have to look for a new job when you come back?
4: I actually applied for a leave of absence and they, they decided not to give me, so I had to resign from my job. So when wow. I come back, I'm going to uh, try and figure out something, but uh, I think traveling is what I really want to do. And uh, if I could get something which who pays me for me being on road or traveling... Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs>
1: there you go. Now, um, what? Did, uh, I'm curious. Uh, what message would you want to send to Canadians? You know, listening to this today, uh, I think everybody has a dream. Everybody love, would love to travel, uh, and we always sometimes put it aside because we have daily realities and, and responsibilities. But if there's one bit of advice you want to give to our listeners about about uh, what this uh, entire adventure has meant for you, what, what advice would you want to give to people?
4: i think everybody they they loves to be in their comfort zone but uh, the actual reality or the actual uh, life or whatever gives you happiness is uh, when you step out of your comfort zone so it's really uh, important for people to decide what gives them happiness some people they they might be happy traveling or the other people they might be happy doing something else so they just need to figure it out and uh, i think it can it can be uh, a like, achievable, even if it's difficult, but it can be achievable. We only have, like, one life, so stop worrying and just live the life to the fullest.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and one final question, You're tra- you you have a travel mate with you, right? Yes, I do. And is this a friend of yours uh, from London, Ontario? Or how did you co- come about? Because going by yourself is one thing, but trying to convince somebody else to go as well and, and going on this journey. I mean, who, who is this uh, good friend?
4: so uh my friend warren uh he's been uh, with me from about uh from since we were in school time so we have been friends from past uh 20 years mm-hmm. and one another may uh are in rahul so we met uh here in uh, london ontario and he has been friends with me for about eight years so we all three decided like there were there were others too but then when the actual plan uh got in action so we three were the one who really wanted to do this and we are here with like we are here doing uh whatever we can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And uh, so were all three of you international students that came to Canada initially?
4: We did, yes. Yes, we did.
1: Well, it takes a lot to, to leave India uh, and to make a life for yourself in Canada, and then still and also pursue your dreams. And uh, I'm very happy for you, uh, enjoying your time in um, Istanbul. Uh, we'll try to catch catch up with you as you're traveling through Iran, because I would love to get your impressions. Perhaps we can chat again when you're in Tehran, and we can sort of uh, give our audience a, a, a sort of a recap of the trip. But more importantly, your impressions uh, traveling through through that country. Thank you so much for your time today, Dev.
4: Definitely. Thank you so much, Charles. It, it was a, my pleasure. Uh, you know, we spent
1: a lot of time talking about um, cars, um, EVs especially, because it's so tech-based, uh, and there's no doubt it's a very disruptive moment when it comes to Uh, The uh, car industry, the automotive industry with technology today, and as we make that transition from uh, uh, traditional fossil fuel vehicles, internal combustion engines towards EVs, uh, perhaps hydrogen technology one day, all of that is just a mix these days as we talk about where we're all headed. Well, uh, our Jeremy Judson joins us now. paid a visit recently to a location where they're introducing, was it a hypercar?
6: A hypercar. It was Zenvo Canada's first unveiling of their new hypercar. So Zenvo is a Danish uh, hypercar company. Mm -hmm. And uh, they distribute, I guess, through the Vysok dealership that deals Porsches. And Mm. uh, they're, yeah, they're a licensed Zenvo distributor. It's their new car called the Aurora because mm-hmm. it's like the aurora borealis okay. um i i will actually rattle off some stats for you because it's pretty impressive mm-hmm. so i'll tell you actually i'll tell you what it costs after okay. um it's got a v12 6.6 liter quad twin turbo engine it's got 885 pound feet of torque it's powerful it, so it's a mere a mid-engine rear-wheel drive but the touring model has a motor for one wheel and a motor for two wheels in the front, so you can have oh, wow. all-wheel drive. This thing is nuts. Uh, top speed of 248 miles per hour in 17 seconds. But I was so awestruck by these vehicles when I saw them that I like didn't remember to say these statistics uh, in uh, when I when I was recording. But uh, yeah, they're super impressive. And let's uh, let's take a listen to me at this event. I'm in what appears to be the supercar district of Vancouver. I had no idea this was here, I mean, I have no business knowing you can buy a McLaren, you can buy a Lamborghini, you can buy an Audi, but I'm not here for any of that. I'm here to get me a hypercar. Zenvo has launched two hypercars. One is for touring, it's for your nice long road trips in your hypercar, and one is more Formula One style specifications. You would truly set yourself apart. I'll say that in your car community, if you had one of these guys. Even along the street, you can see the supercar enthusiasts. This is crazy. I see, I see a Porsche. I see a McLaren. They're just lined up. And, uh, and here's me. I took the bus. I gotta get in there. The vibe is immaculate. The atmosphere in here is pretty intense. These cars are quite something, but I'm going to try to learn the difference between a supercar and a hypercar because I'm looking at two hypercars. This is really something you can tell by looking at the performance, they have not sacrificed form or function. You can tell even on the touring one that there's a lot of downforce. You can tell a lot of space for the air to go. I mean, all of these little cutouts, it is absolutely maximized. I mean, really. Not that this matters, but I mean, it's a beautiful color. It looks like the Aurora Borealis. The paint is beautiful. The color options you have are gorgeous. They're showing off their phenomenal design. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's sleek. And then we come over here and we have the racing model i'm i'm without words this is a stunning vehicle looking at the body look it looks light it looks like i could just pick it up and put it in my purse it's just cutting through the air you can tell i've heard rumors we got like a thousand horsepower or something like that that's floating around hi nice to meet you bushka, bushka nice to meet you i hear you are the men with information if i have questions okay my main question what is the difference between a supercar and a hypercar
1: it needs to be over 1000 horsepower
6: and so 1000 horsepower is what these cars have does the touring that's and the 1850
1: that's about 1450 yes. also it's not just about the horsepower you know they're handmade they made handmade yes specifically very limited numbers the price price point is not is not where the that's why you know you've got to be in that kind of region
6: i just like these are just i don't know they're just a marvel to look at they're going to be rolling out all 100 of them total right in 2025. So 50
1: units of each 50 units of each okay. so start of production is 2026 summer I think we will see, towards the end of the year, we will see some cars in North America.
6: I mean, can you imagine? Almost 2,000 horsepower. This is insane. That was quite something. I've never, I've never quite seen a car like that before. It's a wonder. It's a wonder. It's a marvel of engineering.
1: So it's mm-hmm. it's a hyper car if it's over a mm-hmm. thousand horsepower over a
6: thousand horsepower which uh, the touring had eighteen hundred and I think the racing had something like fourteen hundred horsepower.
1: Wow! So not for dropping off the kids at school. I mean,
6: you could, and you'd be so cool if you, <laughs> you did. Would.
1: They- <laughs> you would. You would. You definitely would. Yeah,
6: and it can be yours, Jazz, for the low, low price. Two point eight million dollars is what we're estimating right now Two per
1: car, po- and they only made a hundred. Now I know why they made only hundred.
6: Yes. I don't even – they the look million. like a really aggressive bug. Like, I don't know. I'll show you sort of if, like – that is – It's that's,
1: pretty, that's a nice design.
6: It's a nice design. There's cutouts like it's, everywhere. It's incredibly low down to the
1: road. It looks like – It's cool. Like, it's something yeah, it's you'd see cool. in Mission Impossible or something yeah. like that, right? And yeah, and it's got
6: those big uh, – what do they call it? What's the nice word? Butterfly doors oh, yes. that open all the way up, and they were letting people sit inside. I didn't want to impose. I already felt so deeply out of place there.
1: <laughs> so 248 miles per hour – uh, yep. in 17 seconds
6: 17 seconds you go from zero to 60 in 2.5 wow just absolutely i I can't, I can't i'm again i'm gobsmacked i'm just at a loss for words so summer 2026 we're gonna start seeing some summer of these on the road i would be scared to drive it I would be
1: scared. It's oh, in this too... city, you have to be. You, you, you would be. I mean, our drivers are. I would sit in my garage. Did somebody just drive into a restaurant here downtown last week?
6: Yes. Yes, they the I don't know the,
1: the reason behind... I, I'm sure there was a reason, but I mean, it's just... It's Vancouver. Isn't you that?
6: know what I'm saying? I don't trust right. anybody. I don't so, even trust me.
1: So, uh... Uh, you're a gearhead i didn't know that
6: (laughs) a little bit i I dabble i I, i'm a little bit into cars yeah it's it's hiding that i didn't know (laughs) it started over the pandemic because i got super i started siphoning my parents prime thanks mom and dad uh to watch top gear and i burned through so much top gear and now uh yeah you just it's it's entertaining but then you sort of passively learn um all about cars and uh yeah so now i now i know a thing or two jazz do you have a
1: dream car um, you know, I, uh... Not any – well, you know, I, I love the, the old cars. I don't – anything okay. from the 30s and 40s, oh. I like, uh, you know, there's the, a the, the sort of James Bond era from, from the 60s and 70s. I okay. kinda like. Those are kind of cool. Uh, I'm not that – excited. I put you La- on the spot. Yeah, I know, but the Lamborghini <laughs> is not something – like people all think about the Lamborghini, stuff like that. That doesn't yeah. really interest me that much.
6: Okay. Um,
1: but, yeah, I like the old classic cars more okay. than anything. That's what it would be. So – and I know – I have a friend who used to put them together and collected them. It's oh, wow. a lot of work right it's
6: it's uh, a big labor of love it is a big labor yeah. of love and
1: this person was really dedicated to it and uh loved doing it so i, I respect the craftsmanship but the energy that goes into it mm-hmm. i mean the technology today is amazing and, and the vehicles are all just uh, amazing but uh uh this one at 2.8 million is there anything more dollars. expensive than that maybe the McL- I, what, what would uh, be more expensive this is, than that
6: this is the most expensive car i think that i've heard of because you don't like even i think a mclaren like i i don't I haven't seen like a two odd million price point. Um, I think that this like it's so rare to see uh, see a car in the in the millions. Yes. It's, that's nutty, especially with a two in front. It's almost $3 million, and that's just an estimate, because they haven't started putting them together yet. We're still working on parts. You know,
1: if you, whoever does buy it, and not that if you're spending $2.8 for a car, you got the money, but there is a luxury tax on those things.
6: Oh, certainly. Yeah. And there's maintenance. <laughs> also, you have to have like $2.8 million several times over to keep up what, with what uh, uh, maintaining the, this hyper
1: car. What would, you, what would the oil
6: change for it be? Uh. Could you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have to worry about that because no. I would never drive it. There you go. All right. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.